Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Upon Further Review, Frontline Conversations with Dean Bobo. I am Larry Bobo, Dean of the Social Sciences at Harvard University. My guest today is Caroline Elkins, and we will be talking about her major new book, Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire, published this year by Knopf. Professor Elkins, welcome. <laughs> you are, of course, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Imperial Reckoning, the untold story of Britain's gulag in Kenya. Uh, let me start off, before we turn to the substance of either of these works, to something a little more personal. You've been here in the Harvard community for a long stretch now, though uh, you're, you're slowly moving from the Faculty of Arts and Sciences to the business school. So how long <laughs> have you been here, and, and what is afoot? <laughs> well, thank you, Dean Bobo, and first of all, thank you for having me today. And, uh, you know, I've been hanging around Harvard for almost 30 years now, believe it or not. I arrived <laughs> well, as a graduate student back in, I believe it was 93. And uh, first of all, you'll never get me you get rid of me too easily in the FAS. I'm forever in the FAS. But, I know, hope so. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I think the—here's one of the—there are many wonderful things about having been at Harvard for this long. I mean, it truly is, all joking aside, an incredible privilege. And the ability to, to dip into other parts of the university and ways in which we are just part of this incredibly— broad and uh, wide-ranging intellectual and practitioner community. And, you know, what I have found at HBS is it's, it's another—I love to push myself outside of my comfort zone. I mean, what the heck is an African historian doing over at the business school? You know, um, I have to say, I did start my career early on. I was an analyst at Lehman Brothers many moons ago to pay off a whole lot of debt that I had coming out of college. Uh, so maybe it's tapping back to some of those roots. But I—look, I also think I'm, I'm very— committed and have been since the very start of my career to reaching wider audiences and to, you know, kind of put my money where my mouth is. If one isn't happy with what they see various leaders doing, communities doing, well, heck, go and make a change. And so I think I was very, very privileged when uh, at that point Dean Noria asked me to come over. Um, and since then, I, I have found it's really quite something to be imagining how do we take the humanities, if you will, and social sciences and bring them into a general management curriculum so that, as they say, they're treating, training future leaders of tomorrow over there, and how do we get them to think about the past and how it influences the present, and which in many ways is what we're talking about today. No, absolutely. And I know that that, that, that kind of ambition has inspired you for, for many, many years as, as a scholar as well as kind of in, in your personal life and engagement. Let me, let me turn us into a legacy of violence. This is an enormously ambitious work a work of remarkable detail and, in point of fact, physical heft. Uh, It'll keep your door open if all else fails. <laughs> believe me, I think it's going to have wide circulation and impact. Um, but it's, it's so capacious that it's hard to find a single easy place to, to dig in and begin. It is a historical tracing and analysis of the long durée and evolution of the ideology, practice, personalities and effects of the building and transformation of British Empire. It's a history filled with implications for understanding events of not merely the past, but around us today, because the British Empire did so much to shape uh, the, the geopolitical world that we still uh, inhabit today. Now, before reaching into specific aspects of your argument, maybe you can make concrete for me, uh, a mere sociologist who dabbles with some terror in history, <laughs> if you will sketch out the scope and reach of 
the British Empire at its height, mm -hmm. as well as the span of time that really is the core subject of the book, because you really cover a capacious terrain, both in terms of time and physical geography. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an important question to set the table with uh, Dean Bobo, because uh, at the height of its, of, its, of its power, if you will, the British Empire was the largest hem empire that history has ever seen. Um, its height is in the 20th century. It really kicks off in terms of vast expansion under Queen Victoria in the 19th century. And at its most massive, it was over approximately a quarter of the world's landmass and about 700 million colonial subjects. I mean, simply extraordinary. Yeah, just truly uh, epic uh, scale. And as I said, uh, world shaping even into the present day. Uh, and you initially uh, separate um, the, the the British Empire in, into two phases or stages, if you will, kind of a phase one of British Empire, which was kind of Western facing. And the book really concentrates much more on phase two, which is mm -hmm. kind of East and Southern facing. So what's the substance of that distinction? Yeah, I think oftentimes scholars will think about, if you will, the first empire as being the empire of settlement. If we think about uh, now the, the United States, the 13 American colonies, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, the latter three, of course, which make up, uh, we may get to it later, sort of what is sort of the core of the initial part of the Commonwealth. Um, <clears throat> and with the loss of the American colonies, um, there was a very much a sort of, if you will, a turn to the East um, and an imagining of a new empire that certainly was rooted in the Indian subcontinent. At that point, we have the East India Company um, that is really staking Britain's claim in this area. And then as the 19th 19th century uh, proceeds along, we see a vast expansion, as I just mentioned a little earlier, under Queen Victoria of, you know, when we have wide swaths of Africa, parts of the Pacific and elsewhere, such that we, we land, as we were saying, with the largest uh, empire that history has ever known. And so um, one way of, of understanding uh, the British imperial period and reign, and uh, in some respects still uh, I think, alive in, in contemporary, certainly academic discourse and maybe popular understanding as well, is a sense of Great Britain as a kind of benign imperial power that, that ultimately, um, uh, despite obvious aspects of, of oppression and harm being afflicted, was nonetheless improved lives around uh, um, the globe for many. Now, you engage this notion both in terms of potential scholarly debate as well as that more lay or common sense understanding of, of British Empire. So what are the terms of that debate and, and who are your interlocutors mm -hmm, here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a big question, right? And you really put your finger on, I think, what is... You know, nothing like getting a bunch of academics to argue over uh, a couple of points, particularly around British Empire, to really see the sparks fly. <laughs> and, you know, on this one, there are some really deep-seated debates. And what I find so interesting about them is not just these aren't just, if you will, academic debates. These are playing out in the streets, in Parliament, elsewhere, in, in not just in Britain, but also across the former empire. And I think if we step back to your question about, you know, sort of how is it that this idea that Britain somehow got empire right— 
<laughs> Everybody else, the you know the you know the wretched French who are always the betoir of the of the British, and you know the Portuguese, and of course you know the the Russians and the Soviets. Look, I think there are several reasons for this, right? First of which is there is a very concerted attempt by successive British governments to maintain an official narrative. And I think that has proven as a kind of red herring for quite some time um, to broader public understandings of, if you will, and I use this in kind of uh, scare quotes for the listeners, you know, as we often do as academics, um, that uh, that somehow or another, as I said, that, that Britain got empire right and that um, it wasn't just the official line from the British government, but that historians were in on the action. <laughs> that at the time, particularly in the Second World War, the book talks about this a great deal, how Oxbridge, you know, Oxford and Cambridge, Dons and the rest were literally writing materials and history specifically for the Ministry of Information, right? Then, of course, um, what happens is once, you know, these narratives are fed, and some of my job in kind of investigating this book is to say, okay, what was the official line? And then to dig through the archives and oral sources and the rest to say, okay, so what actually happened, right? Because, you know, if you will, again, sort of the truth of the matter. And then, of course, the British government uh, intentionally destroys, burns tons and tons of files before they decolonize in each of these various locations. So we're contending with, getting back to your original question about benign imperialism, we're contending with a, a strong narrative around the civilizing mission, that this was an, uh, an element of reform, unlike any other empire. And then at the same time, the British government making a, a very concerted effort, as most governments do. I'm not, I'm not just singling out the British, but they, this is what I study, and they're particularly good at it. I have to say, you have to, you have to admire them for what they were able to pull off. An official narrative bolstered by uh, work done by those at Oxbridge and elsewhere. And then, of course, a burning of the files at the end of Empire that got rid of much of the evidence. And so when you take all those three things together, and I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, benign imperialism and liberal imperialism, it's a very elastic concept and one that lends itself quite well to maintaining a kind of benign imperial uh, mythology. Mm -hmm. Now, you uh, uh, enter this uh, with the ambition of, of crafting a pretty powerful uh, counter narrative. I mean, in some respects, a, a strong antithesis to the notion of uh, uh, um, getting empire right as a as a, a, a benign colonizer and empire builder, and um, in in a sense, the core argument here uh, is that um, beneath the veneer and and the rhetoric and, if you will, the propaganda of of benign. Um, rule all over the, much of the globe, there was actually a troubling set of policies and practices and behaviors. And at the heart of those practices and behaviors were a willingness to engage in really whatever level and extent of violence was necessary to maintain uh, British power and control and to extract various resources from uh, colonial uh, populations and regions. And um, uh, what led you to put this uh, proposition on the table? And I'll read, before you speak to it, I'll read one passage from, from early in the book, where you say, violence was not just the British Empire's midwife. It was endemic to the structures and systems of British rule. 
it was not just an occasional means to liberal imperialism's end, it was a means and an end for as long as the British Empire remained alive. Without it, Britain could not have maintained its sovereign claims to the colonies. Mm -hmm. Wow, I wrote that? Yes, you, <laughs> indeed you did. <laughs> you, know, you, you put out a series of really, um, really crucial questions, Larry. The, you know, and I want to step back for a minute and, and sort of weave this in a little bit to your question about benign empire. You know, much of this book is really wrestling with um, sort of how and why this this level of violence took place, right? I, I want to, you know, and I say quite clearly in the book, I'm not so interested in was this empire a good or bad thing? Where does that get us, right, from an analytical standpoint? But I'm really curious about, and it takes me 800 plus pages to get to the point, but how and why does this happen? Why is it, as you just read that quote, why is it that we see violence as not being just the midwife of of this project? And it brings us back to the question of what did, you know, what did Britain, and I use this again in the broadest breaststrokes, and we'll get into sort of those who were, who were, you know, critiquing all this at the time. What do they think they were doing, right? Yeah. You know, the, 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 the very facile answer is to say this was all exploitative. They went out there. This was about economic, whatever the case may be, political needs. The, the notion about liberal reform was all window dressing and rhetoric. Um, and I would have written a very short book. But I ask the reader to step back with me and think about, you know, how is it that you get to what people believed in? What did they think they were doing at the time? And this idea of liberal imperialism, this idea, as I say, that coercion and reform were two sides of the same coin. And if we step back and think about, I mean, what was such a conundrum at the time in the 19th century when sort of you know, sort of liberal notions were being spread haltingly slow, but in Britain, right? Increased franchise, you know, et cetera, et cetera, democracy and the rest. But they get to foreign shores where they encounter brown and black subjects. And as I say in the book, liberalism, you know, empire was liberalism's fever dream. They had no idea what to do about this. And great thinkers like John Stuart Mill and others are really casting this at the time, of course, which makes sense given the rise of scientific racism, in a developmentalist model mm -hmm. that you— in Africa, you in South Asia will one day be just like us, but not yet. Now, of course, not yet never happens, right? right. You not need yet. our tutelage and guidance. We need our tutelage and guidance. But the reason I'm raising all this is that in some ways, and I raise some of the biblical notions, the rest, I mean, when we think about, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, and the notion, the ways in which Christianity are tied into this, that, that Native if you will, when quotes, subjects had to, not just that they, the violence was needed to suppress rebellion and the rest, but that they had to feel and see their own suffering. That out, and there was a term for this. The British called it the moral effect of violence, quote unquote. Um, you can't make this stuff up, right? And so I think that we need to be thinking about violence, not only putting it center stage, but to really get at what was it that individuals thought they were doing? What's the ideology? And it gets back to the classic conundrum between structure and ideology. And what I try to say is we actually have to sort of put all that under one tent okay. and as, to, to get to where let we me, need Let to me be. peel apart two, two pieces of that then. Uh, one is to get you to go ahead and, and flesh out uh, the, a term you've used a couple times now, namely liberal imperialism. What does that uh, connote? What, what, what are you really uh, meaning by liberal imperialism? And I think of that as connected to, to two other things uh, I really wanted to talk about. 
One was a project within the academy writ large advancing a notion of racial capitalism, that, that the global economic system wouldn't have emerged as it did uh, without racism, and that was a central engine uh, in many ways of, of how our economy, economic systems have developed uh, over time. And a second piece of it is just notions of racism and white supremacy and how they fold into what comes to be um, the practice of liberal uh, imperialism. Yeah. So three very small topics. What does liberal <laughs> imperialism entail? Uh, interrogate racial capitalism. And while you're at it, let's go on to racism and white supremacy. So, you know, look, I think on liberal imperialism, let's start from square one. All empires are violent, period. Right. So the question becomes, even going back to what you were initially asking me about sort of this myth of, of benign imperialism, Britain saw itself as doing something distinct and different. They were exceptional. And what made them exceptional was this idea, as I said, of liberal imperialism or, you know, there are other, there are other notions or civilizing mission, whatever the case yep. may be. And the importance of rule of law and reason. <laughs> Precisely. Right. All of these come under it. And the idea that, that imperialism was not just about the selfish needs of the nation state of Britain, but that there was something liberal, reformist, transformative about this. Now, it would take centuries, you know, or, you know, certainly decades, if not longer, um, for this noble enterprise, as Kipling called it, the white man's burden, mm -hmm. to unfold. Now, of course, I'm very clear in the book that the liberal imperialism is kind of a big tent. That, it, that underneath it, I can sort of have both sort of people on the left of the Labor Party and Tories, right? That this is not what I, I'm sort of using this as sort of a, a much broader term. And it has a very specific connotation in the 19th century. And when I say very clearly in the book, is some may look at this book and say, look, you're using this anachronic, uh, anachronistically, Elkins, that this was, and what I'm saying is actually no, that there's a carrying forward of this belief. And when we think about it, it gets back to this idea that, that you can have both reform and coercion together, that they are not. And what I ask the reader to do, which is very hard, when we think about it, it's hard for all of us to hold dualisms, right? And this idea of refer reform and coercion, and you know, it was very difficult for these big thinkers in the 19th century. John Stuart Mill wrestled, he, he was pained by this, right? And actually it's the humanists, people like Robert Louis Stevenson, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? We are both. Right. And in some ways, and later on with Orwell, they're talking about the current moment, but they're also talking about empire and liberal imperialism. So that's first. I think your second question about racial capitalism to me is, you know, all of these are important questions, but it really touches on something I think that's in our debates today, which is that racial capitalism, you know, can explain everything. Right. That it is the, you know, going back, as your listeners probably know, to, to Robinson and this idea that, you know, that it's it's brown and black labor, that it's being exploited for the benefit of, of sort of sort of white capitalists and, 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 and people in power. I'll say from the very beginning that the I fully agree with that insofar as we think about a material view on empire in this particular case. However, <laughs> what I'm also suggesting in this book is that if we put if we think about everything about the unremitting or unremitting forces of capitalism and racial capitalism, then we miss a big part of the story. And a big part of the story is around, as we were just mentioning, liberal imperialism or liberalism in more general, right? This book is very much a critique about liberalism. What happens when you bring liberalism to distant shores and it intersects with race? 
Uh-huh. And, yes, exactly. Right? And exactly. so, therefore, liberalism and that not yet, guess what? That not yet still hasn't come to most brown and black people in, in the world today, right? And so my point is with racial capitalism that, that what, if we want to think about how and why violence unfolds in the empire, it's unfolding in places that you don't normally think to look for it. Promises of freedom, ideas of democracy, assurances of rule of law. That's where we're seeing the violence, not just in terms of labor and plantations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and that gets back to your larger question about racism and white supremacy. I personally find the kind of, when I got done with this 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 book, the, the perfidiousness of liberalism, the ways in which behind this kind of mask of promises for freedom and democracy, race can comfortably rest. And it continues to do so and certainly did so throughout the British Empire. Yeah. And so this this brings me to the, the kind of last of the more conceptual threads I, I want to lay out at, at the, the top here. And that's about your reference to really state lawlessness and violence. Mm-hmm. And so we've already talked a little bit about how important it was to uh, uh, British self-understanding uh, to be spreading a greater sense of, of enlightenment, if you will, of civilizational development and to uh, operate under the rule of law and reason, uh, but that that whole apparatus could be turned toward developing a rationale for the brutal and increasingly expansive use of state coercive power. And that that is a tale that is uh, kind of tragically you recount innumerable instances of over the course of of the book. So maybe you can talk for a little bit about state lawlessness and violence and the processes of how those rationales get constructed and maybe even speak to, and this is what you said about the mindset, why people go through the process of of developing the justification um, for for these acts when they seem so contradictory, like, you know, uh, the, the moral effect of, in, in, you know, imposing violence on others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is a really important way to wrap this sort of big picture up, Larry, because you touched on it before. If we think about anything in the British Empire and what they thought they were doing, right, bringing, establishing good governance that would serve as the basis, and these are my words, they wouldn't use it quite this way, the basis for the birth of the modern world. <clears throat> And the fundamental aspect, the most fundamental aspect of good governance, moving it away from despotism, which was so, so, so attacked by the British and just, you know, justifications for going in and taking over these large swaths of land, was establishing, and and, and it's a very clear term, rule of law, right? And, you know, the, at the end of the day, this book really becomes a book. I mean, it has many different threads in it, but it looks at this and it almost becomes an actor unto itself, this question about legal structure, right? And you ask this question, sort of why go through all this process just for justification? Just, you don't need to have any laws on the book, just do what you're gonna do, right? But they can hold these contradictions in the same ideological space. They did not see this as being contradictory, right? So for example, when we think about rule of law, at the end of the day, the question becomes, how can you render legal what would, was otherwise illegal behavior in order to maintain authority, uh, maintain authority and control? Mm-hmm. And this becomes a con- continuous conundrum for Britain and the empire. They start off in the 19th century, even earlier, 
um, but particularly then, 18th, 19th, or just deploying martial law. But more martial law, they're very, they're at pains back in Britain because martial law, for, you know, it reminds them a little bit of the, some of the French codes that this is actually lawless and, and that this actually, the, the English common law and the shouldn't require this, right? A suspension, if you will, of powers. And eventually they work their way through this. And what happens on the ground is that actually it's come to be found that martial law actually doesn't do enough. They need more power. <laughs> And they determine that what is what we would know as a statutory martial law or a state of emergency provides the largest bandwidth of permissibility. When I say bandwidth, I'm talking like 159 plus pages of legal codes, right, that allow for detention without trial, deportation, lashes with 12, you know, 12, 12 strokes with a cane, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this is constantly evolving such that, you know, they really begin to hone in on it by the 1930s in the Arab Revolt in, in, in Palestine. But make no mistake, post-World War II happens, and they have bigger problems, right? Because now you've got new updated humanitarian laws and new human rights conventions. And so you've got to sort of, you've got to work your way around this, and they do that through derogation clauses and the rest. But in some ways, this story is very much a story about how do you derogate the law? How do you make claims to good governments when you yourself practice what I call in the book legalized lawlessness, the process of introducing laws to render legal that which was previously illegal so that your soldiers and your colonial officials and the rest are protected from legal action? Absolutely. So let's let's start to turn then to some of those more specific uh, cases and the line of development here. So um, uh, this sort of state-sanctioned uh, legalized lawlessness. Uh, how does this view of thing take shape, and and what role does a figure like uh, Warren Hastings play in uh, its development? And I think this takes us back to India, which is oh, a good, yeah, it good goes, start point. <laughs> it is a good start point, and you know the the book is as much as it gets into all the kind of meaty analytical points that we're talking about. It's also, uh, you know, it's meant to be a good narrative history, right? Oh, and it so, is. Spectacular so like, narrative ah, ah, history. Well, I wasn't fishing for compliments, but now that you gave it to me, I'll take it. Um, but the the book is bookended between two trials. The Warren, the very famous Warren Hastings trial, impeachment trial that takes place as a result of his misdeeds in, in India as part of these, uh, the East India Company. And then a much later one in 29, begins filed in 2009, which was the Mamal High Court case, which I was involved in, which was based off of some of my, the work of my first book. And the point that the book makes, and sort of drawing on our discussion before around legalized lawlessness, at no time in between is empire in the dock in any meaningful way outside of these two cases, right? In uh -huh. Britain. That's Maybe why I hadn't even processed that yep. as I was reading through it, that empire was really not under scrutiny 
here. Not in that kind of legal way. It was particular way, right? actions that right. were under scrutiny. So unfortunately, it suggests to me I put you to sleep a few times with all those pages. But no, never... maybe it just it, it, it may no. be my 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 dullness of, of intellect that no, I hadn't no. framed it that way as I read it. Not uh, at all. I think you know one of the things my hope, Larry, is that there's a lot going on in this book, right? There are lots of threads, and I think that for a reader, whatever his her or their interests are, they're going to kind of follow that, right? And you know, and I think around the court cases, look, you you there are there are smaller cases, obviously in the colonies and the rest. So those can serve as a distraction. But it's it's remarkable that Britain can keep its empire out of the dock. Um, and we can talk some more about that in a moment. But Hastings trial, it's a massive, I mean, it's one of those, you, you, you know, it's one of those things that narrative historians love, right? An epic clash between Warren Hastings and Edmund Burke, who is, you know, sort of serving as the, if you will, prosecutor in it. And, you know, it, it's a, the debate about the meaning of empire. There was not a discussion or any sense that um, Britain shouldn't have empire. The question is, what was their, if you will, sort of paternalistic role? What was their role of kind of do no harm, of you know carrying out the civil rights, however you want to put this? And what so incensed people like Hastings, and later even people like John Stuart Mill, who advocates a kind of, of, of despotism in the colonies, but that they should absolutely follow the law of good governance and rule of law. And what upset him so much and what Hastings was on trial for was corruption, was the use of wanton violence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He, of course, um, is not impeached. And so begins. But the, it's an empire-defining moment. And really, and whilst we do have significant—and not everybody just rolled over and, and bought this narrative wholesale in Britain. There are many voices of dissent. However, it really isn't until 200-plus years later that empire is back— in the courtroom again in any kind of meaningful way. And I think that's that's not insignificant to our story. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let me uh, uh, we'll no doubt return to, to India soon enough. But but let me uh, take a step then to another colonial moment, if you will, and talk about Ireland and thinking of the Irish as in some way an early experiment in how to do uh, empire building and the colonial um uh, project and 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 the way in which something like the so-called black and tans um, are exemplars of the sort of uh, uh, state lawlessness and violence that that uh, are a recurrent motif in in the book. Mm -hmm. No, uh, absolutely. You know, so yeah, it's a, you know, it's a. The second half of our hour here, so on to uh, you know, on to Ireland. This, to book, Ireland. this book is a little bit like a Where's Waldo or Where's Elkins in the Empire, exactly. you know, it really. And you know, it's uh, it's almost what broke me in this book, Larry, right? Because you know, you know, being a scholar, you've got to become an expert on something, even yes. if you're going to write 15 pages about it. And you know what? In the process of that, it made me realize how, which of course, I, you know, many scholars sort of have written about this, but really made me realize the significance of Ireland. And Palestine, we can talk about that in a little bit. Oh, I was trying to, to save that to drop oh, yeah, that we'll, later, we'll, but we'll okay. Save, oh yeah, you know what the heck? We'll bring in Palestine. Later. But to, to stick on Ireland, the significance of how I, I would invite our listeners to sort of think about empire and the movement of violence and personnel and legal codes and ideas like um, a spider's web and the spinning of that silk. Mm -hmm. And it's only when you step back and see it in its entirety that you can really take it in. And each of those threads, if you think, again, sticking with this narrative theme, each of those threads is either a person 
or a colony or a place, and they stitched together Ireland to Palestine, Palestine to Cyprus, etc. Ireland becomes exceedingly important to our story. It had been. I mean, it was it was either a formal or informal colony of Britain for, for centuries. I talk a lot about in the book about the racialization, as yes, we know that absolutely. term. Of, and I was really irritated. One of my, you know, you shouldn't read your own reviews, right? That's a, that's number one. But <laughs> number two, <laughs> you know, saying, you know, oh, she, you know, she doesn't talk about, uh, you know, she sort of smooths over the question about the Irish and the Afrikaners. And, and actually, I'm looking at that saying, oh, gosh, that was some of the hardest stuff to wrestle with. Because, you know, look, the, the sense that the dehumanization Humanization of the Irish, you know, along with the Afrikaners in South Africa, with, with the Irish, the you know that they're lesser, that they also need the civilizing mission, if you will, mm-hmm. right? And so, and Ireland has this kind of quasi-colonial status, right? It's both a colony and of of Britain or of the United Kingdom. And it was one of the first to really, along with India, to really, if you will, for lack of a better term, fight back. Yeah. And the draconian nature of British rule that culminates in the early 1920s around the Irish War of Independence. And listeners may remember, you know, names like Michael Collins, the head of the IRA, some people who are kind of legend and mythical. And part of that, they created two separate units within the police forces. One, um, the notorious Black and Tans, and known for their extraordinarily um, coercive and abusive behavior. And another cadre called the Auxiliaries, and that was a personal creation of Winston Churchill. And the two of them coalesced together into what were known as security forces, which was a combination of military and police and special forces like this and special ops, to to attempt to crush the Irish War of Independence and ultimately... Um, were, as we know how this story, um, reasonably unsuccessful. They, you know, the, this was a first real, you know, after the South African War, serious guerrilla warfare, urban. And the IRA was quite successful. And, of course, we end up with independent Ireland and then, of course, Northern Ireland staying with, with, the, uh, with the United Kingdom. But the importance of this, too, is that when the story of Ireland ends in, 19, <clears throat> in the early 1920s, it's a time when... Uh, protest and violence is on a crescendo in Palestine. And so what do they do? And after there's, and, and I should say in the press, there's all kinds of attacks and questioning and criticisms of the black contans and auxiliaries. They're not getting away scot-free, right? They, they are. And people, some commentators are aghast that after all this is done, Churchill and company are going to send Sir Henry Tudor and all of his merry band of black and tans to Palestine. To Palestine, yes. And and there were many of them. They all show up. They show up on a, I love this in the book, hot, dusty day. I mean, the weather in, on their woolens and their black and tans and are sort of throwing up all over Jaffa as they get off the boat. And they create a mess of things in Palestine um, into what was already an, an untenable situation due to the Balfour Agreement in 1917. And they come in with um, incredible... Uh, scope and permissibility based upon the notion we just talked about, legalized lawlessness, to undertake incredible amounts of what is otherwise arbitrary and illegal violence. And it's really quite extensive what they end up doing in Palestine in terms of being authorized to destroy people's homes, to imprison them, to to, to beat them, and in some cases engage in uh, uh, torture and even executions, as, as uh, I understand the record that you've um, laid out here. And it's, I don't know if that's kind of the apotheosis of, of um, the, the state-sanctioned lawlessness, but, but uh, it's a pretty 
a horrific model in a way for, for what becomes the imposition of, of empire and imperial control. Absolutely, Larry, and I think that, you know, make me a mistake. I mean, some of this, this reading, is, as you know, I mean, it's not easygoing. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't shy away from um, the nature of the actual violence itself, um, and I feel very strongly about not doing that, not doing it in a kind of uh, exploitative sort of way, but you have to... Right, it's it, no way is it the writing salacious yeah. or, you know, kind of violence right. porn, but, but it's kind of an honest depiction, not merely of what happened to who, but... And here's part of the beauty of the book, the understanding of many of the actors who are on the ground doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I thank you for saying that, Larry, because I feel very strongly, too, that it diminishes the lived experiences of those who suffer through this kind of violence to either make it pornographic, as you say, or to avoid it altogether. Right. Right. And so it's a very fine line. And, you know, and I think to your question about about Palestine and what's going on there and this kind of uh, apotheosis of, 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 of violence. I would certainly say, for me at least, one of the greatest, you know, kind of we have these aha moments as scholars was the degree to which 19, the late 1930s, which there was something called the Arab Revolt in Palestine between 1936 right. and 1939, right. was is absolutely fundamental for us if we wanted to understand post-World War II and even more recent violence that unfolds, right, around liberal regimes. And, you know, it's an area of study that, um, you know, certainly was quite new to me. I had to shift gears. I spent a lot of time in Israel, Palestine, and, and various archives in the U.K. And, you know, I'll give you an example. There's a, there's an actor in the, that opens up one of the chapters on, or the chapter on the Arab revolt named Jamal al-Husseini. Yes. And Jamal al-Husseini is the uh, the relative of the Grand Mufti of, uh, of Palestine. The al-Husseini family is a very big family there. And he's known, though, for being a very measured and well-respected Jamal al-Husseini, international statesman. And I came across an, uh, a document, a letter in the archive, actually, in, in London, where he's writing to the Permanent Mandates Commission of the League of Nations, because Palestine is actually <clears throat> a mandate under the League of Nations. So the League of Nations should have some oversight here. And in fact, what we know is that the League of Nations really is facilitating this kind of international imperialism. <clears throat> and he writes this incredibly moving letter, detailing in horrific detail the nature of the torture, that this is like the medieval times, and saying, please, if you have nothing to hide, yes. then I right. would imagine you would welcome... An, an, in, an independent investigation. Yep. Now, of course, what ends up happening is that letter goes into the inbox. Germany invades Poland in 39, et cetera, et cetera. We know the story. And it's not investigated. But for the purposes of, of an historian, and even for people like you and me as an academic or, or readers who, who just are interested in, in important history, people like Al Husseini leave these footprints for us. And you chase them down. And there was that letter that made me really chase Palestine down in a way that I hadn't. And it is, yeah, houses ground down, horrific tortures. I mean, it really, there was not much left of the Arab population in Palestine by the time. And it was a convergence. People who had been in Bengal came in, General Montgomery, Monty, who everybody knows. People were also looking to prove their their personal and professional stripes in Palestine before the war on the horizon explodes. And um, Palestine was regarded as having a great symbolic importance as to the future of the British Empire, right? I mean, that was part of the reason for this enormous uh, and deeply violent 
uh, effort to maintain sovereignty there. Absolutely. You know, there's, you know, first of all, there's so many, and now we're, we're, we're venturing into sort of uh, difficult territory, Larry, right? Because, I mean, just when we think about the debates over Israel and Palestine and, and uh, with, with very passionate and informed uh, arguments on either side, what we, you know, what this book is doing is saying, you know, I'm going to put those aside. And I want to look at what, what the British did. Yes. <laughs> right. I, I yes. want to. And so we can understand, when we look at it through that lens, how different populations can each have legitimate claims, how each of the populations can say they suffered under colonial rule, mm-hmm. how we can see how, to be frank, this territory probably didn't stand much of a chance, right, in terms of, 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 of untangling the mess that, 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 that was done. And, you know, I think when we think about this region in terms of British interests, and certainly when we get into the post-World War II period, and make no mistake, we mentioned Churchill, but let's be clear, it wasn't just the Tories or the Conservative Party no, who no, felt no, this way, right? And, and so after World War II, and to your question about Palestine, Atlee government comes in, Churchill's voted out of office, and his foreign secretary is Bevan, Ernest Bevan. And he decides that the way forward for empire, they know they're going to lose India, but they're kind of going to let this go because the way forward is the Middle East. And the crown of that is Palestine. Right. So um, how do we get then from Palestine and this kind of um, looming post-war period to Malaya? How long is this program going yeah, How long do we have? I mean, I, I thought about going down a different road entirely, which is really to focus on the, the connections among these imperial uh, projects so that it's, it's for someone who's kind of approaching but not a total right. blank slate on these issues like myself. The idea that the set of actors who were engaged in uh, responding to uh, the revolts in Ireland— uh, establish kind of a model, a set of ideas and a framework that then gets exported to the Middle East and run by many of the same people. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's an extraordinary sense of, of history uh, yes, that goes no, here, it, it, on yeah. here. Absolutely. And look, I, I'm just joking with you, right? Because you ask, you know, look, as the author, I, I should be required to be able to tell you this, right? And in a pretty short and succinct way, the same thing with your listeners. And here, look, Palestine, we talked about the Arab revolt pre-World War II. Right. After World War II, we have the Zionist uprising, in which basically, as many listeners may know, that's the period of time when it's led largely by Menachem Begin, others. I do not condone terrorism. He was a genius, an absolute genius. And it was becomes an embarrassment for the British. It's one of the time, their biggest loss in the, one of the biggest losses in the empire, um, where they are basically just beaten at their own game. And they exit in 1947 and 48. And the at the same time, almost contemporaneously, an emergency arises in Malaya. And for all of these practitioners, security forces, spies, you name it, who have just been embarrassed, humiliated, whose, you know, confrères have, have been beaten some in, in horrible ways, murdered by, by the Haganah and others. They are now going to get on boats and planes and bring all these practices, all these tactics, all these laws, as well as their humiliation to Malaya. Mm-hmm. 
and they're going to execute now these policies in ways that they feel as though they could not undertake in Palestine. And one of the arguments that is often made, at least at the time, <clears throat> was that they could not unleash, if you will, in the ways that they had elsewhere because of the American lobby around around Zionism. There are all kinds of reasons that are brought up. I think some of this is nonsense. I mean, it's, it's, it's in part, they were just outmaneuvered in Palestine by the Zionists. But the important part to your question is that we also can't, this is an, you know, people are, have emotion. People feel loss, as we know. They feel pain. They feel suffering. They feel shame. And you had the shame British security forces who had all of this power at their disposal. And then they're put in a malaya. And you, what could go wrong? And they bring all these tactics. And this is where we really see be the beginnings of some of the full-blown massive villagization projects where they take several hundred thousand Chinese suspects, uh, villagers, you know, uh, suspected of Chinese uh, communist sympathy, and put them into concentrated villages. <clears throat> um, they begin uh, on a much larger scale detention without trial. Uh, and this is really, and of course, this is post-war, so there's also the lexicon of coercion and reform also, if you will, d demonstrates how elastic it is. It's no longer the moral effect. It's now called rehabilitation. And these wars are not wars. They are hearts and minds campaigns. Uh -huh. Wow. Um, there's so much more uh, to do here, but let me, let me leap ahead and to maybe two sets of other considerations here. One is to let you make the connection now to uh, Kenya and, uh, and uh, the Mau Mau uh, rebellion era. Absolutely. You know, in some ways, um, it's the, it's, I, I've been scratching this intellectual itch about Kenya for over 15 years, right? And, and it, it gets back to a question that I had unanswered for my first book. And the first book was on called Imperial Reckoning. It was looking at Kenya during what was called the Mau Mau Emergency, and really the use of widespread detention without trial and villagization and, and, and all kinds of abuse and torture and the like in these detention camps. And what the, you know, the way in which this is often explained by those who want to sort of defend notions of benign imperialism is, oh, Kenya was an exception. And, and what I saw at the time was that even in the documents in Kenya, you saw some of these people floating into Kenya from Malaya and some of them from Kenya going on to Cyprus. And I thought, gosh, this can't be an exception. And so anyway, 15 years later, I'm here to tell you it wasn't. Um, and but look, Most definitely most not. Most definitely not. <laughs> and, you know, I think the, you know, and even one of the things that I wrestle with in, in this book, and, and that is how do we see the question about race and violence and imperialism intersecting with, in the context of Kenya? Because there's no question this is an extraordinarily extreme case. Right. It's not an exception, but it is, I would put it on the continuum on the extreme. And, you know, certainly we have, you know, notions of, you know, uh, of, you know, sort of black savagery and the like circulating amongst the European population. And um, and there was a massive level of dehumanizing, uh, dehumanize, uh, dehumanization of the of, of the African colonial subjects in Kenya. But look, this was happening in Malaya. This was happening in Palestine. And I think some of this as well is that the British also just get better at this. They get better at their way of suppressing. They get better at extending things. They get better at their legal coverage. Um, and what they also get better at, and getting back to Kenya, is the degree to which they are able to evade demands for independent investigations. 
There's nothing uh-huh. like an institution that sticks to internal investigations, right? And so they're able to get away with this. And you have many, and we haven't touched on as much, but we have everywhere from, you know, members of the Independent Labor Party to very strong labor activists like Barbara Castle, who's an MP, and she actually goes to Empire and witnesses some of the stuff, writes about writes it. Writes a dem- report, yes. Writes yes. reports, demands. We have missionaries. We have pacifists. We have... And what is really, you know, sort of getting back to if one just wants to admire deceit, if you will. I mean, how good the British government is getting out uh, out from under any of these demands until in the case of Kenya in 1959. And let's make no mistake, they detained nearly the entire pop- Kikuyu population of over a million people um, and, and subjected them to extraordinary acts of torture and violence. And this really, the, the, the whole thing erupts in 1959 when they are unable to explain away the death of 11 detainees at Hola detention camp. At first, they say it was because they drank contaminated water. The, in fact, the, um, the investigatory report by the, by the, um, by the uh, doctor doing the postmortem is slipped to Barbara Castle, and it's shown that they have died from extreme blunt force trauma and hemorrhaging from, from the brain. And so that becomes a cause celeb on the floor of parliament. And, of course, they what they do in many of these places when they get caught red-handed, they quickly move to decolonization, and they're out, and then they burn the files. And, you know, and so Imperial Reckoning was about, you know, sort of 10 years of putting that back together again. But I think it's important to understand, as your question was, about where does Kenya fit within this? Yes, it's an extreme, but it's by no way an anomaly within this larger story. Yeah. And the same actors are all over the place. Yeah. Let me... Let me uh, Focus on something that that may uh, surprise some some readers. Uh, that a, a, a thread that that recurs uh, throughout your work and is is I think uh, really played up in, in certain select chapters comes from the voices of colonial populations themselves. At least from the intelligentsia, the political actors, the press, who were the voices of of those being in effect trod upon by um, British Empire. So. Uh, what 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 is the part of the tale, for example, of a voice like W. E. B. Du Bois in this and his efforts toward Pan Africanism, or George Padmore, perhaps more mm-hmm. centrally, as as you mm-hmm. develop it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, thank you for that question, Larry. I one of the things I you know, and when you write a book like this, you also, if you're just kind of a nerd, like I won't call you one, but I'm certainly <laughs> one. You know, and you go down these rabbit holes and you just keep reading because you just, and you only need a, the stuff for, you know, maybe a chapter or even worse, or even a paragraph or, and I, um, much as has been done, and I'm not going to say I, I in any way sort of discovered the topic of the black radicalism in Padmore and C.L.R. James and Du Bois, Lord knows, and massive literature on this, but I'm, I was trying to fit them into this larger narrative that we've been talking about. And so often in the in the imperial literature, we see more discussion equally important around sort of the South Asian intellectuals. And what I was quite interested in was understanding the ways in which we see black radicalism and also tracing this arc, if you will, from the interwar period along with some of these other narratives. And, and it does it very nicely, right, within the book itself. So I became obsessed with George Padmore and J.L.R. James and mm-hmm. Du Bois. And what I'm struck by, and in particular Padmore, is the degree to which, if we think about sort of, you know, current human rights claims, and what we know about that and in the profession in general is the importance, and it seems facile, of documentation, of numbers, of precision, right? Not sentiment, precision. 
George Padmore, along with his extraordinary writing that just—he was prolific, constantly hammering away at colonialism, pamphlets, books, you name it. And and he was working very closely with the Independent um, Labor Party, the you know, whole range of folks. He wasn't alone. But he was really the brainchild here. And so—but it's a combination of a motive, very clear. He calls it fascist imperialism. He's making—you know, he, he really—but the degree to which he knows history and the facts, he would sit in parliament and take copious notes. And he was feeding the information, showing the Labor Party how to document the cases, how to make these arguments. So when you get to years later, he's really most prolific in the interwar and sort of was a bit more quiet during the world, uh, Second World War period. All of them could have been rounded up and, and, and arrested had they been. But you can see glimmers of Padmore in people like Barbara Castle, right, and in people later on. And so my point with this is that if we go back and look to some of these writings, how prescient these black radicals were. Absolutely. And it just, it honestly, for somebody like me, it, I, I was really, I and wept. how clear the eye they had on clear, these things. <laughs> clear, And wept. I wept sometimes, Larry, because they were so clear-eyed and they were so spot on. And, and they knew, I mean, people really weren't, in power, weren't lessened, but they never, they were relentless. And for Academics and historians, it's their clear-eyedness, but it's a form of documentation that becomes an extraordinarily powerful in a book like this. Okay. Let me, let me pick one bone with you, as I've mentioned before. Uh, the, the book opens with the uh, defacing of a statue of, of Winston Churchill. It says Winston Churchill is, is a racist mm -hmm. uh, on the bottom of it. And uh, I, I kind of hate to confess here at the end that, that, like many people, I've always regarded Churchill as, you know, a great avatar of democracy and freedom and, and dagger through my heart, uh, political enlightenment, <laughs> uh, all of which you have profoundly disabused me of. But um, Churchill is an interesting figure in another sense, in that he is there almost from beginning to end, <laughs> almost from A to Z. He's either present as a journalist, a soldier, or a high-level government official throughout much of the history that, that you recount here, from being in Pakistan and the Northwest Frontier um, uh, era, through Sudan and the Omdurman era, the South African War, obviously, then becoming Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for the Colonies, First Lord of the Admiralty, Secretary for War, Minister of Air, Secretary for the Colonies, um, and ultimately Prime Minister twice. Um, uh, how should we regard Winston Churchill over the arc of this period and as a player in this story? <laughs> I love how you can recite a CV, you know? I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, look, I think, and this is not to be, you know, reductive. As with all actors, this is a complicated historical figure. I mean, he's a man, I say this in the book, he led Britain through the war. Yes. If we think, we, we think about these moments. And at the same time, in more recent times, in 2020, in the aftermath of George, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter protesters, and not just a few, a massive spray paint out his name, was a racist. How do, how do we reconcile that? And yes, begins with 1897 with his first political speech in Bath, right, which is where the book opens up. I mean, you can't make these narrative threads up. Nope. I mean, he, it was a gift to me. <laughs> 
And he plays all these roles. And in some ways, you know, he is in the 1950s when he's finishing up his second premiership and Eden's about to take over. He's literally shuffling through 10 Downing, talking to himself, slightly non-compass because he's had a stroke. Like he literally, it's literally the rise and fall of Churchill and the beginning and end of Empire, Empire when yes. we think about this. Yep. So it's a beautiful narrative device. But he, look, it's a great example of how we can look at somebody who is renowned for his leadership skills and also understand not only was he deeply flawed, but he was the one calling the shots. He was making big decisions. Big decisions. In all of these places. Practicing aerial bombing in yes. Iraq, weapons testing, facilitating the torture of prisoners, the creation of the auxiliaries, the moving, personally handpicking his friend, Tudor, to leave Ireland with the black and tans to go to Palestine, unleashing a whole new wave there, being in charge of places at the time, coming in after the Atlee government um, in places like Malaya, then later Kenya, um, where the consequences are so devastating that we see the impact all the way down today in 2022. And so we have to look, I think we have to be able to, and this gets back to dualisms, to read both of this on the same page, not necessarily to be judgmental, right? Because that gets us nowhere in a book like this, but to understand how and why this can happen and how and why somebody like Churchill encapsulates so much of the complicated mess that was the British Empire. Thank you. And so... Um, I, I, I had toyed with the idea of ending on a more scholarly, if not nerdish note of, of what it is like to try to pull together uh, all of the archival source material uh, to try to weave together a narrative of, of this um, depth and reach and complexity. But I don't want to go down that, that, that avenue now. We'll, we'll let others pour through um, the footnotes here. But I guess I would encourage you to offer a parting thought or comment on how we should read the current and ongoing legacy of British Empire. Mm -hmm. And we've had one recent relatively well-publicized incident where uh, Prince William and Duchess Kate uh, make their Caribbean tour as part of Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. Um, and they certainly encountered something they hadn't expected to encounter, <laughs> which was former colonies saying, uh, yeah, we're done with this. We're going to be independent and um, don't expect all of us to applaud and wave and thank you, uh, uh, as might once have been the case. Yes, absolutely. And I think we're really at a pivotal moment, Larry. I think the and it's not just because this is the topic that I work on, but the past does inform the present. And the yes. question, the questionings that we have today, um, unrelenting vociferous, um, necessary. The British Commonwealth, the successor to the empire, was is the British Commonwealth, 54 nations of which, um, of which most are former British colonies. But there are Commonwealth realms. There are 15 of them for which the monarchy, the queen, um, is the head of state. And that includes Jamaica and Bailey's and elsewhere. So that's where William and Kate were. They're like canary in yes. the, into the coal mine, right? Yep. And before they even left, there were protests and angry letters, demands for reparations sent to them. They carried on like it was, you know, empire was still at high noon. And um, but William was quickly chastened. Quickly. Quickly chastened. And I have to say, look, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, 
you can't be an historian and not see change over time. That's what we do. That's a trade of our business. And, you know, I was, look, I was unimpressed by some of his iconography, dressing up like he was William Mountbatten and all this nonsense while he was in Jamaica. And I was deeply impressed by some of his prescient, prescient notions around um, we have to understand better how the past is informing the present and what we need to do in the future. And what he'll do with this is, is anybody's guess. But I think at the end of the day, in in some ways, marking this period of time of the Platinum Jubilee to honor a queen who was extraordinary, um, they're going to have to rethink what the relationship is between monarchy and empire. And if anybody can lead the way, perhaps we that's a role for them to carve out for themselves. And, you know, we shall see. But my, I'm hopeful, but certainly at the same time, um, you know, I think it's anybody's guess. And I think the demands are going to have to keep coming from the empire and to force the kind of change that is long overdue. And no doubt, Legacy of Violence, a history of the British Empire, will play some role in shaping their thinking and how they engage these issues. I have to say, uh, Carrie, thank you so much. This is a remarkable book, genuinely, and I don't say this lightly, genuinely magisterial. It's a game-changing work in terms of its, its scope, its detail, its engaging read, and... Um, uh, you know, you really are to be applauded for this kind of major entry into ideas of understanding uh, the geopolitical world and the role that that British Empire has and empire building has played in shaping it. So thank you. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Larry. Thank you for those very generous words and for having me today. Very good. This has been another edition of Upon Further Review, Frontline Conversations with Dean Bobo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.